Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I am James Carey. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, uh, an American comedy writer who has written four excellent books about comedy writing. How to write funny, how to write funnier, and how to write funniest, <laughs> and how to write funny characters. Oh, and he also only happens to have been founding editor of the greatest comedy website of the internet ever, The Onion. A big welcome to Scott Dickers. Hi, Scott. Hi, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much for that, Dave. Appreciate it. We are genuinely so thrilled when 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 your uh, friend Noah reached out to us. I was like, "We got to get." He's like, would, <laughs> "Would you like this guy to be on your podcast?" I'm like, "What's the catch here?" What? Right. Yeah, Podcasting so. is weird. Like, you know, people want to be on a podcast, and then people are trying to get other people for a podcast, and there's all these weird dynamics. Some people have uh, like assistants that you have yeah. to go through and other people are very accessible and you ne- you can never predict who's, who's going to be what. Yeah. Uh, and then some people are like, you've never heard of, and they're like, Oh, I charge $2,000 for every <laughs> podcast guest uh, stint. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, my my we're standing. Getting, we're not getting an invoice for this, are we? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm yeah. not one of those people. Yeah, I'm yeah. delighted to be here. Yeah. Oh, man. It's such a thrill. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, it just feels like the, uh, the onion has such a huge footprint on, on comedy and internet comedy, but kind of all the comedy that comes after it. And but before we get to the onion, um, the qu- the first question we always kind of talk about is, uh, I can I can picture Scott sitting cross legged on the floor, a bit like the guy in um, Dream On uh, on HBO. Do you remember that placed oh, in front absolutely. of the TV? Oh, yeah. I do. Um, That's me. Yeah. And you know, maybe watching a ton of television. I don't yes. know. Maybe you are brought up Amish. Um, but uh, what were you? What was the young Scott watching growing up, and what kind of made you want to become a comedy writer? Yeah, some of the earliest TV that I I watched. I was a pretty critical TV viewer from the start, and I really liked Sesame Street because okay. it was very fast moving, and each little segment was like a skit, and there were gags, and they really worked hard to be funny, and they even had homages to like Borscht Belt comedy, where they were doing yeah da 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 type of stuff. Yeah. So. I think that really did teach me kind of the basics of the comedy language. Yeah. And, and I, Oscar the Grouch was the standout for me. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. What a great um, grump character. And yeah, you know, that's where I started learning about character archetypes and, you know, how humor is structured. And I rejected a lot of other shows that were more geared toward me, like Mr. Rogers. I never really got into because it wasn't funny. It, it was yeah. like boring. And then I started watching reruns of Gilligan's Island, I Dream of Jeannie, and shows like that, which I think had a big impact on me. Gilligan's Island was so silly. It's like completely goofy and What's nonsensical. What's the premise? Because we hear about it a lot in the UK, but it never yeah. made it over. We got I Dream of Jeannie and various other things, but is it like kids stranded on a desert island? It's adults. And so, again, it's character archetypes. They picked like these seven wonderful archetypes uh, scientist, um, ship captain, millionaire, uh, movie starlet, farm girl, you know, so they had like the naif, they had the, um, the leader, you know, and it was, it was a wonderful little ensemble. And, but the jokes were so stupid and silly and, and just like, it, it was different than a lot of American sitcoms and just how silly it was. It was, it was almost like a Mel Brooks level of silly. So that had a big impact on me. And then I started doing my own stuff. And 
didn't really like consume a lot of comedy on TV. I started writing books and making um, little uh, jokes. I, I would write jokes and I'd write little stories and I would make things like calendars for people and that I would give them out as gifts, but there would be jokes on them. You know, I'm like four or five years old at this point. And so I finally figured out, like kind of just, I was a really shy, awkward kid and I didn't really have a lot of friends and was kind of a, a loner, so like in my room all the time, performing in front of the mirror. And this is a way to connect with people. I could give them this thing and they would laugh and they would like it. And so that was like my one avenue for, for connecting with other humans. And so I really like went all in on that. Mm. And it seems and like- I have always been words. doing it. Was the written word then uh, that, that's to be read and enjoyed as a written word? Was that always a thing for you? Because I'm just thinking about, yeah. we've never really talked about on this podcast, like comedy annuals and all of those, you know, I remember in the UK, there was a show called Not the Nine O'Clock News and they had, there was a book called Not 1982, which was like a, a fake calendar. And that just made me laugh to the point of crying, you know, and these sort of funny, it feels like that's kind of gone away. And then I, I guess it came back onto the internet uh, but it feels like things have kind of moved on a bit. But those books are really formative, aren't they? Because because beforehand you, you couldn't tape stuff off the TV because who had a who had a VCR? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I didn't have a VCR until I was in high school. Yeah. So you just like you you happen to catch it or whatever. But yeah, I love the format of things. Like I love the format of a calendar because it was a parameter that everyone understood and a format that everyone understood. So you could drop jokes in it. You could draw cartoons on it, and it gave you a structure and I love that. So I would use ABC books and I would use calendars as formats for my work. And then I could give somebody, you know, an ABC book, but every letter would be like, A is for aardvark or whatever. And there'd be some joke or some gag cartoon, you know? So I was, I was doing that pretty young. So the, the Sesame street templates really. Uh, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, because that's um, uh, that's true, James. We've never really talked about them, but they they, they were so influential, weren't they? Really, those uh, those books, uh, and you know, obviously, the Onion is is basically. And I know you brought out loads of uh, Onion uh, annuals and things, but but yeah. as soon as it started on the internet, you know, we got it straight away. It's it's a newspaper on the internet and exactly. so it, it's how, how what 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 were the, the kind of steps then that went from that point of uh sending these cards to your friends and doing calendars to uh to to the onion yeah so i i graduated to being like a class clown in school and continuing to write and then i started recording like radio skits radio plays you know, discovered Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and huh. old time radio. And that had a big impact on me, started making movies. And so when I got out of high school, I didn't really have any other plan or goal. I knew I had to figure out a way to make money doing comedy somehow. I had to make that into my job. And so the first thing I did was, was draw cartoons because it's really cheap. I don't come from money. And I, I lived in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, a small town in Wisconsin. So not like I could go, you know, to New York or Hollywood. And there was no internet to look up how to do things, you know, yeah. how, to, how to get started. So I just drew cartoons and I sent them away to the, the syndicates, like Universal Press and United Features and stuff. And I, I just got rejected time and time again. I kept sending more cartoon ideas. I would keep getting rejected. And 
you know, that dumb confidence of youth where it's like, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, so that's what I did. Because again, I had no other options. And eventually I got a cartoon published in a college newspaper in Wisconsin. And it was a pretty high circulation college newspaper. And by some miracle, the comic strip caught on and they ran it for free at first, kind of on a trial basis, but then they started paying me. And then I was able to self-syndicate it to other college newspapers. I was able to make t-shirts with the characters on them. I published a book, you know, drove the paste up boards to the printer myself, had to drop $5,000 to print these books. Whoa! It was a big, uh, you know, there's no Amazon had to figure out how to get a UPC symbol. It was very complicated. But that book, even though I hand-delivered it to bookstores and sold it on consignment, it made the New York Times bestseller list. It wow. like ended, ended up at number nine on the, uh, the college market list. So I was a pretty successful cartoonist, and I was making a living doing that. I also had another job that was sort of comedy-related. I did voice work for commercials locally in Madison, Wisconsin which was you know, a pretty decent living as well. I would do impressions and character voices for commercials and video games and cartoons and stuff like that. And so when The Onion came along, that was, I was already like a full-time humor writer basically. And I was maybe 23, 24, something like that. And these two guys in Madison had this idea to start a humor publication and they found me and wanted me involved. And they were two of the most impressive and charismatic people I'd ever met. Just like really impressive people. I was used to hanging out with misfits and weirdos, if anyone. Mm. <laughs> and so I was, I was kind of, you know, charmed and thrilled to be even approached. And I just jumped in with two feet. And, you know, we came up with this uh, name, The Onion. And the cheapest way to print a publication then was on newsprint. I, I wanted to be like a magazine, like Mad or National Lampoon. Spy Magazine was the big magazine then mm. in, in the early, mid to late 80s. And it, it was so good. When we decided that we couldn't afford anything but newsprint, that was just depressing to me. Like there <laughs> was no color, you know, it was just awful. But because it was newsprint, it's got to feel like a newspaper. It's It's got to be a newspaper parody. So we're going to put like big, you know, sensational tabloid headlines on the front page. And we're going to do fake, you know, editorials and fake articles on the inside. And, you know, we were pretty, you know, pretty raw at first and overweening. Um, when was this roughly? This is about, well, it founded, The Onion was founded in 1988. Mm. Wow. Yeah. As, as a weekly newspaper. And so that's every week we put out this newspaper and we sold ads to cover the printing costs and nobody made any money. And then a year later, a year after the founding, those two guys left and sold it to me because they were done. It was too much work for them. So uh, I had a business partner, but I was responsible for filling the pages. And so spent the, oh, my apologies. I was responsible for filling the pages and I uh, spent the next few years gathering a writing staff and kind of figuring out what the onions voice was really honing that news parody voice, yeah. which took a long time. It took a few years. And then by 1995, 96, yeah. 
the the internet was a, a thing that you could put a website on. And I didn't know anything about that, but one of our tech guys helped us to take everything we were doing in print, just put it on the computer. And there it was, the Onion website. And I think you know most of the rest from there. Well, I, I was just looking at the, because I've got, um, for the benefit of the listener, um, I'm holding up our front pages of The Onion from 1988 to 2008, which is actually a gift to me from uh, Milton Jones, a comedian um, who I helped write his radio show uh, for Radio awesome. 4. And as a thank you, he got me that because he knew how much I loved The Onion. But there's a visible difference um, between... Uh, there's sort of uh, May 1995, and then suddenly The Onion that we kind of recognise exactly. uh, in August 1995, you just yeah. go, ah... That's the onion. Right before we went on the internet, uh, I had this grand plan to kind of jump to onion 2.0. So the onion before then was black and white. There's no color on the front page. And we kind of did a lot of silly humor. We had a lot of cartoons and a lot of like silly contests and a lot of material that wouldn't really fit under the umbrella of like a newspaper parody. And I wanted to really sharpen that. So I wanted to make it look like a newspaper. I wanted to have a weather map and stock report on the front page. I wanted to have an editorial page and a comics page. And there wouldn't be anything that, that would kind of violate that format of newspaper parody. And it would feel like a whole complete thing. And we had already created this back half of the newspaper called the AV Club, which was legitimate reviews of movies and TV shows and stuff like that, which actually really helped readers realized the onion was not completely fake because it had real <laughs> reviews in it. And that, that helped us because sometimes people wouldn't, they thought the ads were fake. And so they wouldn't patronize our advertisers. They thought we were making up everything. So by making it seem a little more real figured might, that might help as well. So, and, and then also the voice, like the articles would all be, very rigorously edited to always be that straight AP news style parody. And we would never waver from that. We would never break character. And that was kind of a night and day shift. It was, I think it was the fall of 1995 yeah. is when we did that big switch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, I guess the lesson here is, you know, cause we're always thinking about our listeners are, we're all, you know, writing sitcoms and writing comedy, trying to improve our craft and, and also try out lots of different other types of comedy in different formats and genres and things. But it's so interesting how how long it took you to find out what the show was and what, you know, what it was and what it wasn't. You know, your initial take was dictated by the fact that it was printed on newsprint. So yeah. I guess we're a spoof newspaper and you leaned into that limitation and made the most of it. And then you did it for years before you then said, OK, now we're this. And then it moved on again. And I guess the internet, the problem is now the internet gives us the illusion of instant success. Yes. And unfortunately, what people don't see is the, the years and years and years of honing the craft and right. just doing it time and time again before you're kind of ready. And then it, it, takes, it takes such a long time, doesn't it? It can. It can. And it's the same with any kind of comedy. Yeah. In, in stand-up, you have to go up there and perform for years before you figure out who the hell you are and what people expect to hear from you and what kind of jokes work from you. And it's the same process. And so I, I teach comedy to people uh, and I have been doing that for many years. 
And one of the things I have, I've always noticed is the people who don't really have a strong passion for it will give up early because they'll try it and they'll, they'll think, well, I'm no good at it. Well, of course, you haven't put in the time and you're going to suck at first. And only those people who really love it are going to stick with it through that sucking period. Yeah. So I, we sucked. The onion sucked. If you saw the first few issues, it was pretty lame, you know, but we all were having a great time and we wouldn't have changed it for the world. You have to get through that phase. So yeah. writing sitcoms, you got to write a few sitcoms before you're any good at it. And a yeah. lot of people think they're going to, you know, hit it out of the park with the first script. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I was really not mindful of that process in craft. I only recently read uh, Born Standing Up, the um, Steve Oh, Martin. such a great book. Yeah. yeah and it's because, it's you know, it's really because his, you know, when he was rock star famous, uh, it was so goofy and weird. And like, it just felt like it arrived fully formed. But actually, it was years of really sucking and years of an audience going, we don't know what you're doing. And but here's the beautiful part about the Steve Martin story to me. This is the beautiful part. The act that filled stadiums and delighted people and was heralded as the big new thing in comedy was the exact same act that he would do in a nightclub to two people who weren't laughing. Yeah. Same act, same yeah. act. So it was literally just a process of educating the audience yeah. to, okay, here's a new thing. I've, I definitely feel like we went through a little bit of that with The Onion, where at first people were like, what is this? They'd never heard of a humor newspaper before, like a newspaper parody. Humor publications always came the same way. They always came like as a magazine, as kind of an open format where you could do whatever you wanted within that magazine. And it was all called humor. It was never packaged as a serious newspaper. And the humor is like, oh, you have to get past that format. So I love that aspect of it, of like educating the audience, introducing them to you and your work, and just knowing that's part of the process. At first, they're going to be dumbfounded a lot of the times, or they'll, they'll say it sucks, you know, they'll, they'll reject it, and you just got to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting that uh, what, what, what you described there was a timeline of about uh, seven, seven years where you started with you, you kind of thought you knew what you wanted, which was this glossy magazine. They yeah. said, no, we can't afford it. Okay, <laughs> right. it's a trashy newspaper, but it's still your, your, your vision and you're getting there. And then the internet happens, which, you know, you, you wouldn't have known that in 1988, but yeah. here it comes. And then you've got that seven years of doing what you've done. And now it's not, you know, that it's not the thing that you thought you wanted, that glossy magazine, but it's, it's, uh, it's sort of halfway between that, isn't it? It's like, it's like quite a, it's like a classy broadsheet really, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. But it's perfectly, uh, you know, it just looks like a classy broadsheet on the internet. And so in that sense, I guess it took you several years to kind of get to that. And as soon as it got there, I mean, it was, again, that was it. Yeah, this is it. Seven yeah, years I, on, we've worked I like, out. I love that process that you mentioned, James, about the leaning in, because that's what it's all about. It's like you have to find what your character is, what your idea is, what your show is, what your comedy project is, and lean into it to create the most outrageous version of that, like hmm. the really sharpen that. And that's kind of what that process is. Because if you look at somebody like, you know, Steve Martin or any kind of comedy, look at it early and you can see hints of what's to come, but it's just not sharpened. It's just not honed. It's kind of all over the place or it's not confident or something else. 
and it, it's yeah that's like a process of sharpening an axe over several years it has to happen interestingly just a, a sort of quick anecdote because i want to talk a little bit about something you said before uh in 1985 i was a a stand-up comedian and the the english stand-up comedians we were a a shoddy bunch really <laughs> and uh and then somebody got hold of uh, a VHS of uh, Steve Martin's big, you know, the big uh, show, um, Sunny Side of the Street, I think. And um, you couldn't get it in Britain because the formats of VHS. VHS, PAL, yeah. And so there was this one uh, video of Steve Martin and it just went round all the comics and we went overnight from being this sort of bunch of shoddy, you know, kind of vaguely political... Uh, blokes in in shirts talking in nightclubs about stuff and then suddenly we saw my god you can do this with stand-up <laughs> comedy here's a man in dressed in a suit who looks it looks almost like a bank manager and just you know juggling cats or pretending to juggle cats and picking right. up a glass of water like a kid and, and all these things <laughs> and just you know 40,000 however many thousand people there are in the, the audience screaming and yelling you know and I just thought oh my god yeah and it, it changed stand-up in Britain completely and I, the reason I mentioned that partly is because I noticed uh you, you mentioned earlier uh your love of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide and um I keep coming across this about the sort of American people in in comedy and you know internet people as well they they cite so many people cite uh, monty python hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy uh uk office as their big comedy influences and i think god you know america has so much comedy and yet well, i i'm really curious to know what is it about the english uh, comedy that that, that uh, attracts americans so much i'm i'm, I'm interested yeah, I was definitely attracted to it. I discovered Monty Python on public television here when I was about 15. They would run the repeats. And so it was about 10 years after its original run. And it's so interesting we're talking about Steve Martin because he was doing this goofy comedy almost as a response to the more political comedy of like George Carlin or the, the 60s anti-Vietnam baby boomer comedy national lampoon etc cetera, etc cetera. he was doing like uh let's go back to basics let's do simple goofy stuff and he was doing that around the same time as monty python they they it was kind of in in the the transom i guess that it's time for something completely different it's time for something yeah. silly and that so both of those things, Steve Martin and Monty Python were a big influence on me because they seemed so fresh and interesting and original. And Monty Python was very much like Sesame Street with the fast cutting and the, the moving from one thing to another and just seeming so free form and, and unfettered. It was just wonderful. For me, I think there's something a little deeper about Americans' inferiority complex, the British are seen as our betters. You know, we see, we hear any kind of English accent as being fancier and more educated and more interesting than any American accent. So that's our bias. We think of the, you know, oh, the British. The, oh, oh, yeah. okay. That's, it's it's a hundred percent real. I, I was literally <laughs> with a friend of mine uh, who just studied for four years at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and American professors of theology 
would allow him to interrupt them. This mate of mine <laughs> called Nate, who's just some goofy, lanky idiot from the UK. Right. right. But because he was British, um, it was like, oh, that's okay. Yep. And you see it, it really comes through in Frasier as well, doesn't it? Anything totally. that's British yep. is brilliant, you know. Yep. It's, no, it, 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 it's some kind of miraculous subliminal thing in our in Americans' heads. When they hear the British accent, they, they immediately put it on a higher, on a higher level. Mm. And yet anybody um, who's my age, uh, I would say, in the, so I, I was born in 1975. So if you were brought up in the 80s in the UK, the 80s was not a particularly happy decade. I mean, it was, it was okay mm. in the UK. It was sort of getting a bit better, although Dave might disagree with that. But it just felt like America was one giant John Hughes movie. So, you know, it was it was the country of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and E.T., Spielberg. You got every movie six months before we did. Uh, everything was cheaper. Portions were bigger. Yeah. Reagan was optimistic. You know, your your president was a movie star. You know, how that, you know, what? No, I even, totally hear, hear what you're saying. So we're, so we're just, there, the grass is always like, greener. It's the few, the, the, the faint remaining fumes of the greatness and the power of the empire are all we're attracted to. It's mm. not anything real or current. Yeah. <laughs> so it's true. Like there, there's a lot of comedy that came out of America that is good or maybe just as good as Monty Python, like Mr. Show in the 90s yeah. is equally as good as Monty Python. Can I use this and chair? <laughs> That's that one. Can I use this chair sketch, which is his audition piece? No, the, okay. That's one for I, later, Scott. You're welcome. No, no, no. I sure. I, I, I look at those shows like percentage of hits. Like, what's their hit ratio on the show? And Monty Python was like a fifty percent hit ratio. Um, just the other day, I watched episode four, and it was like there wasn't a single laugh in the whole episode. <laughs> but I worshipped Monty Python. I worshipped them. Yeah. And I learned so much about comedy. They, they to me were like the comedy Rosetta Stone because they used all different types of comedy. They used all 11 of the funny filters. Uh, the world's most dangerous joke is a sketch that uses every 11, all 11 of the funny filters. And it's really fun to analyze them. And they're, they're just, they were the flower of uh, mid 20th century comedy, in my opinion. So, well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't have time to talk about all 11 uh, filters, but does this feel like a good Good time because I've just been uh, reading about them in your. Uh, I've read your your first book, How to Be Funny, and uh, you talk in sort of quite a lot of detail about the the filters. But actually, before we get to the filters, there's the very first thing in that book, How to Be Funny, um, uh, which uh, your your mantra, I think, as far as I can tell, which is uh, something that James and I also feel very strongly. Uh, it's it starts with subtext. Um, yeah. So could you explain how how you mean that in the context of your filters and, uh, sure. and other things? Yeah. And just to be clear, I know it's easy to get confused, uh, but the book, my books are how to write funny, not how, how to, to write. Be funny. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Whether you're funny or not is not my problem, <laughs> uh, but I can teach you how to write funny. So, yeah, subtext. A lot of people call it a point of view, but I don't like point of view because it's too vague. And it's like, yeah, I, I come from this point of view. So this is how I see things. That's not really very actionable. But subtext is a statement, like noun, verb, object, that states a judgment or an opinion or, or something like that that you have that you, you are going to communicate through humor. 
And it's not inherently funny. It's just an opinion. The Catholic church is corrupt. You know, uh, relationships are too hard and not worth it. You know, simple statements of opinion or value judgment. And then by routing that through any one of the 11 funny filters or more, it comes out the other end a joke. And so you can, you can do a joke, you can do a sketch, you can do a whole novel or screenplay or movie, you know, whatever you want. But that, yeah, that's how I see it. You, you have to have something to say. You have to have an opinion. You have to have a value judgment. Otherwise, why are you writing? You literally have nothing to say. Yeah, yeah that's so helpful because in a sitcom situation, the the subtext the, the very idea of subtext implies there are already two things going on there's already there's already a conflict happening and you only need one character to have subtext because you know we we're the audience we're the, we we could be the second character so a character who is trying to do x but we know he's trying to do y uh that's just that's your subtext and you know and that's why Rowan Atkinson can do a one man show and yeah. Mr. Bean can be super funny because it's all it's all subtext, um, you know, so it's yeah. it's not just clowning, you know, and, you know, going back to Charlie Chaplin, you know, that's it's it's it looks so simple. But, it, you know, subtext really is that kind of secret source, isn't it? Yeah, because you see a lot of comedy where there is no subtext, but they're doing the same kind of either physical humor or pantomime humor like Rowan Atkinson, for example, and. It doesn't work. It's just stupid because there's nothing going on underneath. The people don't have anything to say. You know, um, you have pie in the face humor or uh, it, they, they used to try to get away with that a lot in America. And sometimes it would work, you know, on primetime TV or whatever. But I could tell like I could tell the difference between Monty Python and, you know, a sketch on the Donnie and Marie Osmond variety hour. It's just as night and day, you know, Yeah, they didn't have anything to say. Yeah, I guess they were very earnest, weren't they? Are they were they were they Mormons or something? Was they? They, they are Mormons. Yeah, they're Mormons. Yeah, yeah. So in a <clears> they're way, still with us. They're they're still entertaining people. Everything is so wholesome that they can't be subtext because <laughs> that would be deceptive in some way or something. They, like yeah, that. and they can, they can't have any subtext that's interesting or astute or yeah. subversive. Like that's the most interesting subtext. Something that's going to like tear down an authority or an established. Um, structure of society like that's the really interesting stuff you know yeah i mean uh, and, and that that kind of um shines through a lot obviously in in the onion uh but i mean uh, let, let's take for instance uh something you just said there about let, let's say you know uh it's impossible. Relationships suck. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it's impossible for monogamous relationships to work. So could you give a couple of examples, say, of how you might use your filters to make some comedy out of, you know, that, that, that an opinion, basically, really, isn't it? And... Yeah. So, yeah, you would start with that opinion and then you would just the way I write jokes. And I, I kind of broke this down from my book by deconstructing how I think naturally because I think most comedians, comedy writers get to a certain point where they're not thinking it consciously. They're just doing this subconsciously. And I was trying to like break down and apply terminology and articulate the process of what happens when you try to think up a joke. Do you start with that opinion? And then you start going through the 11 funny filters, which are the language of humor. That's how you make something, an idea into something funny by either delaying certain information creating some kind of surprise for the audience, making it absurd, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I would just start like with the, the easiest funny filter is irony. Just say the opposite of what you mean. So you would start with something like uh, relationships are uh, wonderful and fun and easy and fulfilling. And I never have any problems in my relationship. So then if you move to character with that, one of the other funny filters, you might apply that trait, that idea to a character. And pretty soon you have a character archetype. You have the naif, you know, you have somebody like the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt um, or uh, uh, Marianne on Gilligan's Island, since we're talking about Gilligan's Island, someone who believes in things. And then you extrapolate from that. And suddenly you've got, you've got a character who has a voice now and you can write for that. They believe in everything. They've never had their heart broken. They've society has not destroyed their will to live yet. (laughs) And once you have that writing a sitcom, like you need to know who your characters are before you can write. Otherwise that's, that's the worst kind of sitcom script is when you're reading it, you can't tell who's talking because the characters aren't distinct, you know? Yeah. Or it's, um, the, the, I think the even bigger besetting sin I'm finding now is it's all story. So it's one, it's, it's mainly one person doing a thing, then a thing, then a thing, then a thing, which affects the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's a cliffhanger for to, to tune in next week. And you go, that's not a sitcom. That's a series of that's a series of events. There's no, you know, and actually there are plenty yeah. of shows that are like that, but they're dramas or they're they're, they're you know, right. they're procedurals or anything like that. I mean, not, not very good ones. But sorry, and, Scott, I interrupted you there. Carry no, on. no, that's quite all right. I, the the combination of really good, funny character archetypes and uh, a story that you can really latch onto and really get roped into uh, is that's the winning formula right there for a sitcom then it's just a matter of finding the right archetypes that play off each other well because then you use the filters again there where you you want to use contrast between characters so you have a naif and then you have a know-it-all so you have contrast and then you have arguments and um, those things help you round out whatever your story is you can view it from different angles Um, obviously the character is going to try to solve some story problem and make it worse and and then there's going to have to be some comeuppance or some come to Jesus moment uh, at the climax. And, you know, that's, that's basically, it, it doesn't have to be anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a, in a movie, it has to be a huge spectacle of a story, but in a sitcom, it just has to be a little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have to find something to wear for the gala tonight. Like, that's it. That's your story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, just to take a sort of slight variation of what you said there and say, you know, relationships are complicated, say. Um, and then you, you, if you look at, say, um, Frazier and Niles and, and Martin, and um, you have a kind of, you know, Frazier who is uh, supposed to help people get help in their relationships, in, completely incapable of holding down a relationship himself. Right. Niles, who is married and doesn't know that everyone else knows that he so obviously is in love with 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 Daphne you know he's he's almost in denial about himself and then you've got Martin who is held up as the kind of you know the perfect uh the, the, the perfect relationship and then years seasons down the line we find out that you know he had a he had an affair and 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 you know it wasn't all it wasn't all it was cracked up to be so that's kind of you know that that and each of those is applying those kind of filters isn't it yeah the filters are are so handy to use 
just initially coming up with a concept, coming up with every single gag line. You can go through the filters and come up with gags. And then they work as plot points. You know, you described some irony things going on, some character things going on, some misplaced focus. It's another one of the filters where you focus on one thing, like this perfect relationship. And then, oh, you know, it's a misdirect because there was an affair. So they're, they're usable at, at every stage of uh, every aspect of uh, writing a story. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Scott Dickers. We'll be back to it in a moment. But if you've joined us on Patreon, you would have had access to this interview for actually quite a few weeks and you get early access to lots of our episodes and also extended episodes as well. Um, Although we're just going to throw it all in into this episode. And also you could join us on the masterclass level and come to one of our masterclasses. In fact, we are running one a month uh, for our masterclass members. And the next one is on the 26th of October um, at 7pm UK time. It's all on Zoom and it is what we're calling open heart script surgery, where we're going to actually uh, read each other's scripts and critique them. And so there'll be like a script room um, and we'll be sending around scripts. So if you think that you might want to do that, then join us on Patreon on the um, on the masterclass level, where you'll also get access to all the previous ones we've done. We just did one on how to pitch a show in and out of the room and how to make mo- how to make the most of those opportunities to pitch your show uh, briefly and brilliantly. If that sounds of interest, go on over to Patreon. Uh, you can Google Sitcom Geeks Patreon and you'll find it. Okay, back to the interview. We should. You mentioned archetypes earlier, and I guess, and that that's the latest um, thing that you've been writing about. Is that right? We like. Yeah, uh, it's how to write funny characters is yeah. the latest book. Yeah. So you got 40, 40 archetypes. And I don't know how you feel with like, you know, the seven basic plots and all that kind of stuff. And I'm reading seven basic plots going, um, this is all one plot. This is all hero's journey. <laughs> you know, it's like. No, they're all, it's all one plot. In, yeah, in, in one sense. But um, uh, but how, how did you get to 40? It's a good number. You know, I like I like 40. Yeah. It's a biblical I number. Do, so. <laughs> I don't start with the number. I, I usually start like with the 11 funny filters. I just added up. OK, what are the professional tools yeah. of humor? How do they make things funny? And I came up with a, there there seemed to be 11 of them and same with the characters. So I could have done more, but then the more you add, the less popular those characters have been historically. So I wanted to do the 40 most bankable characters, the archetypes that keep coming back that we always see in comedy. And I rank them. So the number one character, the every person is the most popular character in comedy. And you know, some of my favorites, like the bumbling authority is pretty high up on the list as well. And these are characters that just come, come back and come back. And, and, and then I put in there how to make them original. Cause you can't just bring them back the same way they've been brought back before. We'll all think it's a cliche and ah, it's hacky character or whatever. There's simple, simple little tricks that you can do to make them seem entirely new and fresh that, you know, the best writers know how to do that. And it's it's really fun to see a new show like from a master. You know, Greg Daniels in the U.S. is uh, one of those people produced so many great shows. He did the American version of The Office, mm. and he did Parks and Rec. Man, I love and, Parks and Rec. Yeah, yeah, Nine Nine, yeah. <laughs> Brooklyn yeah. Nine Nine, and be- before that, he was he he had done so many shows. So um, he's a he's a guy who really knows how to write a sitcom. Yeah, and. It's fun to see how he makes characters original by doing hybrids 
you know, combining two different uh, character archetypes into one, or sometimes three different yeah. archetypes into one, it can get a little complicated. You do more than that. A and great, then a great creation on that, as you're just saying, a really surprising one is I think Captain Holt in Brooklyn Nine-Nine has got to be, is such an interesting character in terms of like, he's, you know, he he's the authority figure, but you would imagine that, you know, being black and being gay, suddenly he is uh, a very political figure in terms of the culture. But the fact that he has no sense of humor and he is completely fine with that. And he, and he, he kind of knows that he doesn't, um, you know, the fact that he doesn't see that wunch rhymes with lunch, you know, there's this whole riffing about, it's like, so, you know, that is such a brilliant, you know, we know that character, but to make that character a surprising character that keeps coming back and then becomes this, you know, wish father figure for Peralta, who just wishes Holt was his dad. And that The way that relationship emerges is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and you see the mastery of how that works. So he's using one of the most popular character uh, comedy character archetypes there is, that of the robot. That is the person who does not use any emotion or humor. They're just flat. Yeah. So and then, but he makes it unique by making it black person, making it a gay person, making it a cop. We've we maybe we've never seen a robot who had all those traits. So it seems totally fresh to us, even yeah. though it's it's the same archetype we've seen a hundred times before. The Blues Brothers are robots, you know they yeah. they don't speak with any emotion. Uh, they're very flat, um, and they also and, can't drive. <laughs> also can't drive. Given how Actually, many cars are smashed up in that show, in that movie, yeah, yeah. I uh, love just, that movie. D- although just this kind of word of warning to add to that is that I, I've heard uh, Michael Schur being uh, interviewed, I think, by uh, Tim Ferriss, yeah. and he talked about when he first started to get. Uh, meetings with producers and he met loads of people he was quite a successful writer he met loads of producers and the only person that he kind of met and they had a connection was was greg daniels and he said they then spent a year just talking about these characters that would become the american version of the office um so you know you it, these these characters don't sort of come out of thin air in mm. in the first meeting and so right. everything you've said there james for instance mm. about the uh, uh, uh about holt and uh and and then scott you mentioned as well about mm. you know that kind of the, the robot the, 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 the robot and things and they they they, they they kind of you know it takes a lot of work it, mm. you know it would be lovely to just i mean it is great looking through your list of 40 and going oh yeah all oh, and it's a lovely kind of uh thing when you well I, i've done it a few times when i've been kind of struggling with a character thing i've just oh i'll just have a quick look at scott's list of 40 just to, i'm um, glad to hear yeah. Yeah. me in a direction that's but, what it's for yeah i use yeah. it too i use it too because it's it's hard to hold all that in your brain at, at once and i was so surprised that no one had ever written that book before because we yeah. all know these archetypes and I had seen this book, The Eight Characters of Comedy, and I'm thinking there's more than eight. Yeah. So uh, I felt like it had to be written. Yeah. I mean, there's either one or there's a thousand, <laughs> but there's not eight. There's not. I yeah. Know, well, I mean, there's I this know. one dra- dramaturg, uh, John Truby, who has a theory that it's all three characters, and right. they are uh, the uh, the child, the animal, and the machine. And that's a pretty good theory. Like you can almost break down every character into one of those three. They're either acting like child. Yeah. Uh, that's over emoting or they're acting like an animal, which is, you know, just like yeah. basic bodily functions yeah. and not, no intellect. And that, or they're acting like a, a machine, which is totally straight. 
Yeah. And I like that, but they there are some filters. nuance, you know? Yeah. There, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a handy, I don't know, intellectual exercise, but as far as practicality, yeah. I feel like the, the 40 archetypes that I listed, you know, are pretty bankable. And I yeah. give examples of like where they've been used and how they've been used successfully. Yeah. So you can see how they made them unique each time and what yeah. their traits are, how to use each one. Um, so I'm, I'm a yeah, the, the, geek the about this are stuff. So helpful. Um, you know, that Truby one that you mentioned, I've got, I think I've got his book somewhere. It feels a little bit overly prescriptive in terms of his plot stuff, like 22 steps of like, yeah, okay. But that movies are different and I, I wouldn't, wouldn't know how to start really on that. Yeah. He, he made a movie a few years ago using his steps uh, and it totally flopped and he immediately like erased it from existence. <laughs> the, the movie or the theory. Uh, yeah. He, he did like an independent film that he okay. kind of heralded as here is the perfect movie and it of course was not the perfect movie you can't yeah. do that <laughs> oh, man. That's got uh, poor guy but he no he i love his work and i'm a big fan of his yeah. uh his stuff yeah but the filter but the, just the so i remember hearing in a uh, a sermon amazingly a preacher mentioned an article he'd read in the atlantic where he said there are three types of people um and it was how three how three types of people react to um a threat uh one says uh, run away. Another one says, get it before it gets you. And the other one says, there is no threat. And you go, you, oh, just, you just, yeah, you just described fright, uh, flight, fight or freeze. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so and, and in a way, it's just worth knowing, you know, and I, I occasionally I've talked about how just give your characters which what love language are they into? The love language. Yeah. And also the um, what is that? Myers Briggs yeah. is another one people use to great effect. Yeah. And I, you know, they're doing more like comedy characters used to be simpler, but in some of the more recent sitcoms of the last uh, 10, 20 years, the characters have been a lot more nuanced. They've had more dramatic elements. And, you know, I used to say, uh, the, and I still think this basically, I think, I don't think it helps to complicate humor ever. Mm. I think it's always good to be, to simplify it. Yeah. But I used to say uh, a comedy character is two dimensional. They yeah. should have no more than three traits, any more than three traits. They're too complicated. They're a dramatic character. Yeah. But that we're kind of blend, we're, we're infusing drama and comedy a little bit more in some of these yeah. long lasting sitcoms. But I yeah. think that's kind of a, a master skill that I wouldn't recommend anyone try right out of the gate. It's so hard. Yeah. Because when somebody explains a character, when I'm reading a character outline that someone's written, the, the longer the explanation is, the less I know the character. So, I don't want to know, ever see a character explanation. I want to see them doing things yeah. so I know who they are. <laughs> but if you want to give me, yeah, but a three-word description of their this and this, but this. Okay, fine. Perfect. But yeah, the moment fine. it's like, but sometimes they're not afraid to do this. And <laughs> right, then, right, right. And then, but they right, also right. do this. It's just like, stop talking. Stop, stop it. You know? Yeah. And that's uh, another no-no is like telling the audience something that they wouldn't be able to figure out watching the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. Show not tell. Uh, yeah, I think it sort of co goes, comes and goes in cycles. We've had we had a cycle, and you know when the whole Netflix and streaming started up, and it's like suddenly uh, we need more narrative in our comedy. You know, we need we need a, a, an arc, and then people said, yeah, but 
Uh, that means that the characters have to learn from their mistakes. Therefore, it's no longer comedy. And so, right. and, I, and I, I've noticed actually a little bit of a kind of reining that in. Certainly, the the, the BBC now, when they talk about commissioning shows, they say we are definitely now we're looking for sitcoms. We're looking for standalone episodes. We're, but at the same time, they are also they've got a that the, the drama. They're kind of it's more the drama people are looking for the comedy drama rather than the comedy people, which I think interesting. Is, hopefully, is a good thing. Um, that is interesting. I feel like Brooklyn Nine Nine is is an example of that pendulum swinging back to just being a little more two dimensional with the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Big Bang Theory, you know, that's not that's wrapped up, hasn't it? But I mean, that still has a pretty big. You know, kids can't really get enough of these shows. So, so the idea that people don't want these shows is just is kind of idiotic. I mean, people are yes. still watching Frasier. for the for the eighth time you know it just goes you know one of the main uk channels put three episodes on every morning and it just goes round and Uh, round and round yeah here we we watch the office in reruns um people watch it every day it's like these are like going to work (laughs) it's like going to work yeah Yeah, totally just before we leave the character thing i mean and you mentioned there uh big bang theory and uh i was uh notice so you had one of your characters is called uh, the nerd right, and right i thought oh but big bang theory so that's the nerd the nerd the nerd and the nerd uh but then i looked at so you, you look at some of your other characters and you've got you've got like the loser so there's the loser nerd and you've got the know-it-all and the, the know-it-all nerd and howard's so, the uh, loser nerd isn't he is that right um yeah the guy the, the kid the one who was the kid in roseanne he's isn't he the, isn't oh no the i don't know if he's is he's a loser sorry i, I watched the first series of Big Bang Theory like 12 years ago and I didn't yeah I'm, I'm not too familiar with the show I've watched yeah. a few episodes but yeah, I don't yeah. know the characters too yeah. well and then I know there's the girl uh, the girl is like um, a damsel naif nerd yeah. you know so yeah they all use different um, t- hybrids with the nerd yeah hmm. yeah That's not, so you can take two of them but but anything more than two i think is like say you're going to start to it can get a little complicated yeah, yeah. yeah. well then then i think i always think of james bond who is know-it-all fighter trickster like he's got like five or six yeah and he's one of the most popular characters in entertainment in the last yeah. 50 years but i guess the different actors who've played him have leaned more towards one or other of those they have. yeah yeah lothario know, so, he's you know yeah. he's got he's got so many he's like you take all the best traits you put them into one person yeah <laughs> and so he's just like this superman superhero superman sex pest you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to talk as well. You mentioned that you've been uh, you teach uh, comedy uh, writing, and I do. Uh, I, I'm interested to know uh, first of all what you teach, but also I'm curious to know for someone uh, who's starting out. And I guess it's a, it's different in the states uh, to the UK, but I'd be curious to know if you're starting out in comedy. What's what's the kind of uh, what 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 is the the, the path, or are there sort of many? Uh, paths uh, in the U.S. Yeah, right now the path is pretty consistent, and that is it's very similar to what it used to be in the past. But the way it's manifested is slightly different. So, in the past, the way I succeeded was by putting myself out there. I would draw a cartoon, I'd write an article, I would send it away, I would start my own newspaper, I would start my own comic strip, I would try to you know perform on the street i would just try to put myself out there same thing now but there are so many more tools now you can put yourself on tiktok and instagram and youtube 
And that allows you to actually get seen <laughs> in a way that you couldn't get seen before. So typically the people who succeed in comedy now are people who created a really funny Twitter account that uh, got passed around and shared and someone uh, of some experience saw it and was like, oh my God, that person really can write well. Let's snatch them up and give them a writing job. It's, and then, so that's one way. Another way would be to be in person in New York or LA and be going to the clubs and doing stand-up and doing improv and just being part of the scene. And so if somebody, if somebody uh, for, like an agent or a producer happens to go to a show and see somebody, you have a connection there and you can like s submit uh, uh, some jokes or submit a uh, spec script or whatever. So it's, it's easier to get an agent. It's easier to meet people. And that's new too. Like I, there, there wasn't that kind of, you know, connection between the industry and performers uh, back in the day before sitcom, before, uh, sorry, stand-up comedians became such a farm team for professional yeah. TV writing shows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just it's in a way it's sitcoms. It's probably not even the best place to start anyway. So you kind of want to, because otherwise you're just going to write stuff that's kind of derivative. And these days people want voices. They want, yeah. you know, I remember reading a, a, a bit of advice written to, uh, I think it's Penn and Teller were involved in this at some point. And someone just said, oh, I saw you do your magic show. And I was just disappointed that now I can't do that because it was so perfect. And that's what I want to do. And they just say, well, you need to be interested in something else and then think, and you want to be a magician. Okay, well, get into Picasso and then think to yourself, how would Picasso do magic? And that kind of gives you that thing. So, you know, you want to create a cartoon strip or, or, a, or, a, TV, or, or a stage show or this weird Twitter handle account, you know, and, and although shit, my dad says, didn't turn into a successful sitcom it probably could have done you know what i mean they could have just rolled the dice and it you know yeah but that, went that from, guy yeah that guy ha probably has a career now and yeah. he, you know, he certainly made a splash yeah yeah so uh, the, the other commodity is the what's new what's fresh so mm. when the onion came along it was the first humor newspaper so it was new it's different and people are all wowed that's that's kind of a, a trick you know if you can come up with something that nobody's ever done before like you were just saying do, what's your voice? Is it totally fresh and different from all yeah. the other voices that came before? That's a real commodity. Yeah, so but, the, but I, the perseverance is the is the key as well, isn't it? So if you got a, if you have a funny Twitter handle, and and a screenwriter who can change your life finds it funny, they might retweet you. Once they've retweeted you five or six times over the course of six months, nine months, two years, they might go, "I'm staffing for my show," and Hey, totally. actually, there's that dude, girl yep. doing this thing. I, I don't even know who they are, you know, because it's some weird alter ego. Um, yeah. It's it's a loaf of bread that's tweeting, you know. Yeah. And that, um, that consistency is much like a PhD is in the academic world. It yeah. basically, all it demonstrates is that, that you have the staying power to continue doing the work. <laughs> and so they want to know that before they hire you on your writing staff, you're, that you're not just a one hit wonder. Yeah. So putting yourself out there and being kind of relentless with putting out stuff is really important. Like when, before somebody pick plucks somebody and hires them like that, they're going to Google them and they're going to see, do they have a website where they, they do like a humor blog or do they have a YouTube channel where they're, you know, doing stand up? Are they, 
writing articles for all of the like McSweeney's and other like publications that print humor articles if they see that that person is really serious about doing comedy and they're kind of got their fingers in all these pies that's who they're going to pluck and that's exactly what we do uh, for many years we did this at the onion hmm. where we would hire fellows or interns and those are the people who always end up on the writing staff in a few years you want to look at their what are they doing are they out there producing humor every day well that's who we want you know hmm. it, there's a myth that so many people cling to that they're going to write one thing and it's going to be so brilliant that everyone's going to give them every opportunity they dream of. And it simply doesn't work that way. Well, that that's in fact what I was going to ask was, uh, do, you, do you think the days of, uh, you know, kind of even if you've got a more professional attitude and say, well, I've got I've written five scripts and, you know, I've got a script for kids. I've got a, a family show. I've got a, 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 you know, something race bit racier. Do you think? Uh, it's uh, I mean it, we know that less and less stuff is being made but um, do, do you think that that way in now is that kind of just just is it just so much harder or you know I mean it, do you it, recommend it, it much at all it can happen but I don't hear about that happening nearly as much as the way I described where you're out there already doing the work you produce your own show on YouTube and somebody finds it or it builds a platform, builds an audience to the point where it's on the radar, hmm. you know, then they know that you have the staying power to continue doing that work. And then they come to you often, like you don't even have to go and submit scripts like they're coming to you and saying, what do you got? And that's our ideal because the entertainment business is really uh, like high school with money. So they, <laughs> there's power dynamics involved and you don't want to be the beta. You don't want to be, coming to someone saying, please help me. You want to be the person in the alpha position where, hey, I've got this great comedy product and I've got a big audience. What can you do for me? You know, yeah. that's that's a much more appealing person for someone in the entertainment business to want to work with. You know? Yeah, because also you're helping them because they need, you know, you're, you're solving their problem, you know. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an endless bottomless pit. There's a maw that must be fed content and scripts and material they're dying for people who are relentlessly producing comedy and can fill that maw you know yeah 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 and i, I always say we're not wasting our time here because people like watching tv and they like laughing so this is not a minority interest you know so, <laughs> no no uh so so stick at it I yeah. think we should probably uh, wrap things up there. You've been very generous uh, with your time. Uh, Dave's got probably details of your book that we can tell. In fact, your many, oh. many books, uh, Dave. What, 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 where are people? So, yeah, so the books are, um, the, 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 it, it's, it's great. How to, how to write funny, how to write funnier, and how to write funniest. Can you possibly top a book called How to Write Funniest? Well, you can, you know, How to Write Funny Characters. I'm uh, looking forward to How to Write Funnier Characters and How to Write Funniest <laughs> characters as well um but um can you tell us a little bit about what you you're teaching as well do you uh, where, where where people can find you uh if they want to um, work with you yeah so uh everything is on my website howtowritefunny.com and there's tons of free resources there like free ebooks that explain the funny filters and other things and my how to write funny podcast is there where i interview people in the comedy business both in front of and behind the camera, just to like figure out how they do what they do. And then anybody who wants to go deeper with me can buy my books. They're pretty inexpensive on Amazon or wherever you buy books. And 
And then if you want to go deeper still, I do have courses. I have a how to write funny course and the comedy business school course, which walks you through how to succeed in the comedy business. And with both of those courses, we do monthly, like three times monthly meetings where I, I attend and we go over material and it's like an ongoing class. So uh, I, I taught at the Second City in Chicago for a few years Whoa. back in, in the mid 20 teens. And I, I, I kind of took what I learned from there and, and wanted to create something that was more, um, uh, more, more actionable for students to actually take and turn into a career because sometimes somebody would take my course for eight weeks and then they would get a job writing professional comedy and having no experience prior to that. So it is a system and sometimes you need a little help. You need a little like handholding through that to really figure it out. So I, I love doing that and I love um, mentoring people. I also do that like one-on-one -on -one mentoring and so on and so forth. So yeah, I'm, I'm heavily into that. I love it. It was one of my favorite jobs at The Onion was we would always hire people with no experience and we would train them. And then it was so rewarding to see them go off, leave The Onion and get jobs on sitcoms or yeah. uh, write movies. And, and then make and more money than you. What? Make How? far what? more money than you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. That, it's, uh, yeah. you start to feel like a, a parent at some point yeah. Yeah, of yeah. all these people. And it's very, very rewarding. Yeah. Great. That's, that's brilliant. Cool. Excellent. We'll we'll put links to that in the show notes as well so people can can engage with you there. Scott, Thank it's you. been so brilliant and such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much uh, for being It has with been us. my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Oh. Thanks yeah, very much thank for listening, you. everyone. And the usual Patreon things apply. We won't talk about that now. But thanks very much for listening, and I'll speak to you next time. Cheerio. Thanks very much. Cheers.